next week, uh, I really uh, don't want you to miss out on something. We've got a really special uh, Sunday next week. I'm going to have uh, Stephen and Sarah share a little bit about their testimony. Uh, for those of you that don't know, S Stephen and Sarah have come on uh, staff uh, part-time as associate pastors. And uh, they're going to tell you a little bit about who they are and uh, what motivates them and what uh, scriptures are, uh, scriptures that really give them life and meaning. And uh, get to know them a little bit, get to know their heart uh, for the Lord and uh, their desire to commit their lives, uh, you know, really to serve the Lord full time. What that might look like and uh, what their thoughts are for, for you know, us as a church body here um, and particularly uh, connecting with millennials. Uh, they being millennial, uh, they well suited to connect with millennials. So next week. I uh, just encourage you to come and hear their heart uh, for Jesus. Uh, I want to uh, jump right into the Word of God today as we uh, get going. Uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, you've come today to hear a message from the Word of God, uh, as opposed to my incredible uh, charisma and character, because uh, that's a little bit lacking. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, if you come here for uh, entertainment or um, to listen to my weird accent, I'm going to horribly disappoint you. But if you have come here uh, hoping to hear something from the Word of God, uh, hopefully uh, I will help you. Uh, but uh, let me just uh, give you this verse. 1 Corinthians, uh, it says in 1519, it says this, And if your hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Okay, just let, let that like sink in for a moment. Really? I mean, really. Uh, listen to this again. This is the Apostle Paul. He's committed his whole life uh, doing missions trips. We're going to be looking at an Acts chapter 20. And uh, this gives us a sort of a big insight as to what motivates him. And by definition, that should give us a little bit of a self-check, like what motivates us? And, and the question that I'm really asking is, how much are you and I motivated by eternity? Uh, is this something which really motivates you? Uh, is it just something that's like, well, I don't know. You know, when I die, we'll see. I, I really don't know who can ever know. Uh, you know, I'm just really interested in what Jesus can do for me today uh, in this life. But the Apostle Paul is saying, and if your hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. I mean, he's really like laying it on. It's like, okay, if this is all we got, it's a problem because it ain't that great. I mean, it's really can be really good, but there's so much more. And Paul has lived his whole life for the, so much more. Uh, in a similar way, there's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, and it says this, uh, 3.11, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Okay, so God, from God's perspective, God has made us, He's designed us to have eternity 
planted in our hearts. There's some part of us which we will never be complete. We will never figure out this world. We'll never figure out our day-to-day affairs unless we wrestle with this part that God has placed in our hearts, eternity. And, well, let me finish reading the verse, or start again. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to the end. There's just a lot in this little verse, because we cannot fully figure out God from the beginning to the end. We can't exclude eternity as much as uh, much of society would love to do that. If you want to sort of get a glimpse of the bigness, the fullness of God, the meaning of life, uh, get some understanding about suffering, uh, if you want to get you know, some thoughts that make sense of this life, you have to understand eternity. Or should I say, by understanding eternity, a lot of things start making sense. But it's more than that. There's a sense that uh, we can do things now that we can't do in eternity. And there are consequences to the way we live and what we do now that have eternal consequences. And so this becomes sort of like a really big, big, big topic. And the question is, how do you think about eternity? Do you think about eternity? Uh, How often do you think about eternity? Does eternity mean anything to you? Uh, You know, I've said on more than one occasion, uh, as I've been preaching, uh, I came to faith when I was late in life. Uh, I thought it was late, 28, uh, and kind of squandered my uh, teenage years and my 20s. And if I could have done it again, believe me, I would have chosen now with hindsight to have accepted Christ a lot earlier. I think my 20s would have been a lot more fun than without Jesus. I mean, that's just my own perspective. But when I came to faith in Christ, I had no clue about eternity. I mean, as far as I knew, like when you died, you just, you know, became part of the earth and just dissolved and, you know, maybe some worms would eat your body and, you know, kind of recycle and, you know, who knows. I mean, I, I just really wasn't ever motivated. I didn't think much about when I died. It was, it was a zero for me. And then when I heard about eternity, like in church, because I just didn't grow up in church, I was like, wow, this is like pretty fantastic. Uh, but it was sort of later as I was just reading scriptures, like, wait, this is like a big deal. I mean, like, this is like a, the whole deal. Uh, I, I, and I was just, the more I started meditating on it, the more excited I got about it. And the more I realized how, you know, I was just like clueless and I was missing so much of the goodness of God in this life and the hope and the expectation of God after, uh, after death. So, you know, I don't know how much you motivated uh, by eternity. My answer was I wasn't. But as I've, when I became a believer, I've become increasingly uh, motivated by eternity. Uh, it just starts answering a lot of questions. A lot of things start making sense. Uh, God starts making a whole lot more sense. Jesus dying on the cross starts making a whole lot more sense. I mean, pieces of this puzzle just start coming together. Back up for a second. Uh, God in society takes these seasons where he kind of gets our attention on spiritual things. And, you know, I would say my perception of Boston, Massachusetts, Hopkinton, Milford, at this particular time in, in life is, 
not a whole lot of excitement about things of the Lord. Uh, I mean, it's just not this sort of passion uh, for things of Jesus, uh, for spiritual talk. Uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a climate that is just passionate about Jesus. But in 1700s, we were in a very similar kind of a thing. You got, okay, fantastic things happening financially. You're starting to get printing presses going. You're getting currency produced in, in currency format. Worcester's a thriving city. Uh, Newburyport, things are happening. You've got the French and Indian War going on, and you've got the British you know, soldiers uh, getting captured. And, and you know, there's a lot of political tension and sort of the, the height of the colonial thing. And in this season, God brings us Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards uh, is born in Connecticut, and at 14, he's at Yale University, super academic, bright kid, uh, and he eventually gets his master's degree and becomes a pastor, you know, in some forgotten little town, Northampton, Massachusetts. You know, not exactly, you know, the metropolis, uh, the big city, you know, the influential place. And Jonathan Edwards is in this tiny little town in Massachusetts with nobody interested in anything godly. And Jonathan Edwards is just an academic. And by an academic, I mean people were coming to listen to him preach, and he had like no charisma. Uh, he was intellectual. So, you know, I'm guessing you probably stood there and gave profound thoughts about things. And, and I'm sure church wasn't too riveting. And then all of a sudden, something like miraculous happened. Somebody got saved. It was like unbelievable. Uh, but not only did somebody get saved, God was stirring up something. So uh, in the accounts of Jonathan Edwards in 1734, uh, he starts preaching about justification by faith. He's got this big idea. It's like, no, you know, despite what the Puritans are saying and the, the way people have become super legalistic and uh, they're doing church, but, you know, there's all sorts of ideas about how you have to be pure and live holy and God has somehow other got lost in the mix. Jonathan Edwards comes up with this great teaching about grace and, and justification by grace and say, hey, listen, we can be saved. We can know God because of what Jesus has done. Let's put the emphasis on what he's done and not about, like, you know, are we living pure lives? And this was like a whole novel idea. And uh, this was good news. So uh, in December, there were suddenly six conversions. This is in 1734. By the spring, listen to this, by the spring, there were 30 people accepting Christ every week. Now, that's Northampton, Massachusetts. I mean, like, oh. well, that started what became known as the Great Awakening in Boston, in this area. And for, you know, like a two, three-year period, Boston was turned upside down. And then you had George Whitfield, the British guy, coming out here, and they preaching, and thousands of people are receiving Christ. And the way people are doing business, and their interest in politics, and banking, and finances, and it gets shook up, and this has an impact where it like spreads all the way down the coast and across America. And I say all this for this reason. It's because like we've come full circle, and we're back in a season where there just isn't like a whole lot of interest 
in Jesus, generally speaking. But at the same time, there's just a lot of people that have a sense that God is about to do something in this area, in New England, in Boston. And there's an expectation or a, a sort of a, a excitement like, God, I, I believe you're going to do something. You're going to stir our hearts. Because one thing we all know is we can't uh, remove what the Bible calls a veil uh, that we have in front of us where you can't outsmart like your own thinking. You can't like intellectually pierce this veil and understand God and see what God is doing and get excited about God. But God can remove this veil where all of a sudden God's truth and God's thoughts become very real and exciting and very like accessible and God becomes accessible and God moves in our lives and it's it just becomes exciting. We see God. We see God do awesome things and gives us hope. Uh, God removes this veil. Uh, I want to just pray as I'm, I'm preaching today uh, that God would remove this veil, you know, that many of us have. And, and he gives us this uh, renewed excitement that only the Holy Spirit can do. Th this doesn't come by, you know, drinking less coffee, praying more often, you know, walking an extra miles to lose some pounds. It, it comes because the Holy Spirit transforms us. So Jesus, I just welcome your Holy Spirit here. Help me to preach your word, God. Uh, and just help us, Lord, to see what it is that you're doing. And I pray for each person sitting here today that you would touch them uh, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to them, that your word would come alive to them, would be pertinent. Uh, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if there's anything I want you to get out of this message, because I don't want to get like down rabbit trails here. Like, there's got to be something that everybody gets out of this message. It would be this. How do you prepare now for eternity? What consequences does eternity have on your lifestyle today? Okay, that's, that's a big thought. If we can get that, then we've got a lot. So if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you open it to Acts chapter 20, or if you're following along on your phone, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 18. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. The context is this. Paul has been doing missions work, and he spends a lot of time in the church in Ephesus. And uh, uh, despite all his apostleship and his good preaching, the church is a mess, and there's lots of fighting going on, and uh, people have all sorts of ideas about how they should go about business. And uh, in this great city of Ephesus is a big temple for Diana, and people are worshiping this God, and, you know, there's all sorts of other things happening. And Paul is making a beeline back to Jerusalem. He wants to get there for Pentecost, and he actually doesn't want to go to the city because he doesn't want to get sidetracked, but he wants to meet with the leaders. And so this is a kind of an unusual piece of scripture where we see Paul calling a whole bunch of leaders from the church and saying, hey, come down, I, 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 come down to the coast, uh, make the trip, uh, meet me, let's talk about some things which are really important, and uh, then I need to be on my way. And it's also pretty uh, touching because Paul says, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. Uh, you know, so it's a farewell address, and, and he's obviously... In that kind of a context, he's got something to say. I mean, he, he wants to say something to these people. But anyway, uh, here we pick up the story in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 18. When they arrived, this is the leaders from Ephesus, uh, Paul says this, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done 
the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that come to me by the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and for Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing for me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. And this is the work. This is, this is the whole point. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. I mean, Paul was so like, he had this eternal perspective. It's like, I don't care how much suffering, I don't care what lies in my way, you know, and you know, today, most people would say, look, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, it's going to be how to make your life comfortable, easy, wealthy, you'll be happy, you'll be healed. Uh, I mean, if any of you would like me to pray for you to have the Holy Spirit come upon you so that you can endure suffering, just come on up. Uh, uh, it'll be pretty unusual prayer. I, I haven't seen a long line for that. And, and I wouldn't sign up for that one either. But Paul, is, he's got something. He said, look, man, the suffering and stuff, yeah, 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 whatever. Kill me, shoot me, injure me, torture me, but I'm excited about Jesus. And it's like, what? This is just, he's, he's got something going here. But my life work means nothing to me unless I finish a work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock. His church purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. If you've got a bulletin insert, won't you uh, pull it out? I want you to just underline a few things here quickly. Uh, and this is assuming that during the week you want to reference this. I want to make three points here. The first one is this. Our condition of separation from God and the offer of good news. Uh, Acts 20.21, 20, Paul is saying, I have had one message for Jews and, and Greeks alike, the necessity, and you can underline this, repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. The second point I want to make is eternal life or eternal death. Who is responsible? And in Paul's, Paul says in Acts 20.26, 20, it's not my fault. You might want to underline that. Thirdly, I want to point out uh, Jesus' high view of church, which is so opposite for most of us and most people today. So guard yourselves, it says in Acts 20, 28, and God's people. Feed, the, feed and shepherd God's flock, His church, purchased with His 
own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. Purchased the church. I mean, we get the idea that Jesus died for us. But do we get the idea that God, that Jesus, has died for the church? Let's just uh, back up and look at this uh, idea, this our condition of separation from God and the good news that Jesus is uh, representing and giving to us. You know, uh, one of the struggles that the Apostle Paul was having is you come into Ephesus, there's all sorts of ideas about life and gods and how to worship all these different gods. And then, you know, Paul is presenting and teaching about Jesus, the truth. And people like take pieces of it and they dispel other pieces of it and they hang on to a piece they like. And Paul warns, he says, listen, when I go and he doesn't mince word, he says like these other dogs are going to come along and, you know, distort my teaching. And if you're going to be part of this church, I've I got to say something in, in all like uh, kindness. I don't know how else to say it. But I'm committed to preaching the Word of God. And what that means is there's some parts of the Word of God which are totally fun to preach. They're awesome. It's like the grace of God, the good news of God, how God heals, and God you know, supplies our needs, and God directs us, and and then there's other parts of Scripture which, like, most people don't want to preach. You know, like, about hell. And I want to talk about that today. And, like, who's responsible for people going to hell? And you just, you know, across the church, you just, like, hear silence. It's like, nobody wants to talk about that. We, you know, we want to be a movement. Or, you know, yeah, like, we're we just going to talk about grace. Or, you know, if you charismatic church or Pentecostal, you know, we're just going to talk about prosperity and... That's really, people want to hear that, so people track with that. But what I'm trying to tell you is, if you're going to be here, you're going to hear messages on all sorts. You're going to hear great stuff about the presence and the power of God, and how He transforms us, and you're going to hear stuff like today, like hell. What an exciting idea. This great day today, you guys coming, and I'm going to listen to a message on hell. Oh boy, I am. Okay, well, it's only 15 minutes left. How long, how bad can this be? You know? Yeah, but if we get an eternal perspective, this can transform us. Uh, you know, what, I tell you where, this, where I get riled up the most. It's at funeral services. It is, when I sit in a funeral service at, at many other churches, my stomach just boils. And, and this is why. Because you have clergy standing up, and they are preaching things that are totally untrue. And I'm thinking, this is like a really big deal. I mean, this is like the heart of the gospel. I mean, you'll go to a church and you know, they go through the whole, you know, whatever they do for their particular uh, tradition. And uh, then the priest will stand up and he said, you know, Johnny was really a, a, an unbelievably great guy. Meantime, you know, the guy drinks and smokes and he's like being a terrible citizen. He beat up his wife. But he was baptized as a baby, so he's going to heaven and everything's just going to be great. And everybody's like, oh, it's so nice. And I'm like... What? Are you kidding me? He ain't going to heaven because he was baptized. And you know, but the but you can't say that at a funeral service. You can't exactly say he was a rotten, you know, son of a whatever not he ain't going there. I mean, I gotta preach some of these too. I mean, like what do I do when I've got somebody that's totally got no faith and I'm not gonna stand up and say, Well, this sucker, man, he his time's up and I'm sorry you guys, you lost out. You can't do that. I mean you gotta say something. But it, but it, but it's like it's torturous because it's like, wait a bit, 
you know, in trying to comfort people, we just tell him all these wonderful things. And invariably, at every funeral, you'll hear, oh, he was such a nice man, or he was such a nice woman. I mean, she was such a nice... I mean, there was one person that loved this person, you know. Or, you know, while he was at the bar drinking, he bought a free drink for this guy. He was really a good guy, you know. And, and you've got to, you got to look for some good at, in a funeral. But basically, the message from the preacher, nine times out of ten, is he's such a good guy, he's going to heaven. Of course he's going to heaven, and you'll see him in heaven. And I'm so glad all his pain and suffering's gone, and all the families too, and, and you'll see him there in heaven. And Paul is saying, that ain't the message. You know, it's sort of like listening to the traffic report. Uh, who wants to tune in and listen to the traffic report this morning on a Sunday on 495? It's like, there ain't no traffic to report. Great. Nothing to report. I mean, it's like, okay, there's nothing to report. If, if hell doesn't exist, I got nothing to say. There's nothing to report. On the other hand, tomorrow morning, just say there's this major traffic pileup in Framingham, and the Mass Pike is backed up all the way to, you know, 495, and I'm flying over in the helicopter doing the traffic report, and woo, a really bad thing. I'm not going to say anything about that, because that's really bad. You know, downtown Boston, everything looks really good down here. Yeah, there's not much traffic uh, just ignore the fact that there's massive pileup because who wants to hear bad news? I mean, come on, just give the good news. There's nothing to worry about. I mean, you don't need me as a preacher if I can't tell you the way it is. You, you want a traffic report to tell you the way it is, you know, uh, and you want it to be relevant. You don't want a great traffic report on Sunday. There's nothing to tell. Let me just summarize the Christian message because I think it gets so distorted. I, you know, sometimes the basics have to get like explained because it's not so basic god tells us that we have a soul independent of our physical bodies we also know that fish don't have souls you can get a soul but it's not a, and it's a fish but it, <laughs> but fish don't have souls animals don't have souls i mean trees don't have souls now, if you were in an Eastern mystic religion, you would say, yeah, well, the Spirit is everything, everything's... No, from Jesus' perspective, people are unique beings. We have a soul, and this is like a big deal. It's our soul which has eternal life. But then comes another mystery. Uh, people feel like, well, the body, if the soul is important, the body is irrelevant. And there's been much in Gnosticism, which is a whole other topic, where... You know, in early days of Christianity, there was this idea that, look, your soul's really a big deal, but your body's trash. Just get rid of the body. Now, what we know from a biblical standpoint is in eternity, you're going to have a soul and a physical body. When you die, your physical body will decompose in the ground. But when Jesus comes again, you will be given a new physical body, a perfect body that will last forever. Your soul and your physical body will come together as one. This is a mystery. And you will look like some resemblance of who you are. Uh, we don't exactly know what that looks like. We get a glimpse of that in the resurrected Jesus when he's walking on the road to Emmaus and the guys are walking along with him and they know Jesus before he is resurrected and they don't recognize him after he's resurrected. But then they do recognize him after he's resurrected when he you know, shares bread with them. There's something mysterious about that. But again, heaven isn't going to be on some cloud somewhere where you know, you, your, your soul is drifting around doing who knows what. The biblical view is that you will be reunited with a new body on this earth, and this earth is going to be recreated 
back to the way it was in Genesis where everything is perfect. There'll be no more suffering, no more pain. We will have relationship with God unveiled. And that's going to be the biggest attraction of our all, that we have access to God's love. We will experience God's love. And yes, those that have accepted Christ and are in the kingdom will have incredible relationship uh, with God. And those that don't, won't. So let's, I don't know, uh, there's so many different ways to to hit this. Uh, But let me just maybe read what Jesus has said about eternity, about hell. uh, Because, again, I think it's a a useful scripture. Uh, If you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke. Remember, it's Luke that wrote Luke and Acts. And here he's picking up on a story about uh, that, that Jesus tells. And the reason I, I like this parable about uh, the rich man and Lazarus uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19, is this is a story Jesus tells. Now, maybe I didn't say that clearly. This is a story Jesus tells. <laughs> in other words... Jesus wants us to get something out of the story. Now, this is not a great parable that everybody wants to preach on. It's like, you know, underpreached. People don't want to go here because it's nasty. Uh, but in any parable, what you want to try and get out of a parable, any parable, is there's normally like one point that Jesus is trying to make. Uh, it's not like every verse, you know, is worth expounding on. Uh, there's one point. But in this parable, every verse gives us Jesus' sort of idea of what he sees heaven and hell to be like. And it's super insightful, because without it, we wouldn't really know a whole lot. We would have the Old Testament limited uh, version, which is pretty limited, uh, and that's what we'd be left with. So let me just read this. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Okay, what's Jesus doing? He's contrasting two completely opposite lifestyles. The rich who's got it all and everything's comfortable and perfect. And this other guy who's just totally miserable and he's got absolutely nothing. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. Now, right there, there's something insightful. Okay, wait, there's angelic beings and there's a sense that they do something and they take them to Abraham. Wow, Abraham, like where did he come from? You know, he's been dead for thousands of years. There's something really interesting about that. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. In other words, the tables have been turned. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you. 
from here, and no one can cross over uh, to us from there. The rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they won't end up in the same place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brother can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And Jesus ends this parable by saying this. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. So this is like a whole bunch of like consequences here. Uh, the first one is pretty obvious. I mean, once you're dead, you're dead, and you can't change your state of affairs. Uh, there's also the sense, getting back to Paul and his whole mission for living, and the question I asked in the beginning, like, how does this impact you? It's like, what about your family, your kids, your parents, your extended family, the people that you know? Where are they going when they die? What can you do before it's too late? I mean, this is an old path, you know, that's been worn on, walked on. It's like worn out and people like don't want to hear this kind of preaching. But I think we need to hear it again. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards, what's known in his uh, greatest sermon ever preached, was sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, I listened to that sermon. I'm like, whoa. How could this be the greatest sermon ever preached? I mean, it, for me, I was like, oh, it was like awful. I mean, I was like, uh, okay, I just got to tell you. I was like, I don't enjoy it one bit. I mean, essentially the whole sermon was, okay, the fires are really, really hot. And they're really, really burning. And in some intellectual way, he describes that for 25 minutes. And that's the end of the sermon. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I, uh, okay, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not getting it. But what I am getting is this. When God stirs us, when we get uh, in touch with the reality of our condition and of eternity, and the fact that we, you and me, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, we've only got this time on earth to influence people for God, to influence ourselves. And it's not just like your good living. It's your faith in Christ that gets you there. Uh, you know, we can't go to these funeral services again and again and just hear, you know, all this, whatever, you know, nonsense comes out of these uh, services, which is intended to comfort people, we have to reconcile our fact that are we going to be in heaven? And we have this unbelievable assurance in Jesus, which is unlike any other religion. I mean, contrast this to the Jews. The Jewish religion is still waiting for a Messiah. They're not sure if they're getting into heaven or not. They kind of have a strong suspicion they are because they're God's chosen people. And for many Jews, like, okay, you know, I know I'm Jewish. I don't have to go to synagogue or shul or whatever. I just, like, I'm Jewish, so I'm good. I'm, hopefully I'll get in. That would, for many Jewish people, would represent their lifestyle. And for Muslims, now remember, Muslims started 600 years after, you know, the Bible was uh, after Jesus. So, uh, there's a lot in the Quran about Jesus, but there's nothing in the Bible about the Quran because it's 600 years later. But for an average Muslim, man, they get it. They get Abraham. They get Moses. They get that God is coming back to judge this world. That is totally clear in Judaism, in Christianity, and in Muslim. For Muslims, 
Jesus or God is going to come and be the judge. And when he judges things, there's going to be a, divide, a division of, in, if you're Muslim, paradise. Uh, or if you're Jewish, you know, eternity. If you're Christian, eternity. Uh, but the central fe- feature is Jesus. That's where these religions all divide. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, it's Jesus which created this world. It's Jesus which created you. And our excitement in eternity is going to be that we will spend it with Jesus. The person that created us, designed us, knows who we are, has placed eternity in our hearts. He's given us the hope. He's given us the joy. And he's going to make everything perfect. Everything is going to be perfect again. Just uh, uh, finishing, finishing this up, the Lord of the Rings. There's just a really insightful little uh, quote there. And it says this, uh, you know, in, in trying to describe the mystery of the resurrection in eternity. It says that bad things get made right. So uh, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead, as he thought he is, but he's alive. And then he says to himself, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he's just so excited. And then he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes. This is the mystery of eternity. Everything sad, every disease, every problem is going to become untrue. I mean, it's a great reversal of thinking. And so we have this excitement that being with Jesus... All our problems, our struggles, our difficulties, our sadness, our hurts, our pain are going to become untrue. Uh, We're going to experience eternity the way Adam and Eve initially experienced it in perfection. A perfected garden, you know, no mosquitoes, no ticks, no Lyme disease, you know, just perfect. We'll like enjoy ourselves. We'll be in the presence of God. But the question for you and for me is, what are we going to do about it today? Are we going to influence our friends? Uh, you know, one way, this is like such a serious message. But on the other hand, if we get it, it's, there's so much joy and relief and, and freedom. I mean, this is why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for you, for the church, so that we can experience what he wants us to experience, eternal life with him, your whole family if they know Christ, if they received him. So Jesus, I just ask, Lord, for your, that you would just stir up this verse, that you've placed eternity in our hearts. And Lord, that we can do something about it now. Lord, you, you, you've given your son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to make a way that we can be forgiven, that we can repent. You've given us your Holy Spirit to transform us from inside as long as we're willing to cooperate. And Lord, you're saying that you recognize us as being your children, that we can spend eternity with you by having faith in you and putting our trust in you. And Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to share this good news with those that don't yet believe you. Lord, that you would help us to remove the veil from our family, from our friends, that they would come to know you. And Jesus, I pray that we can live in the, the truth of your word. Uh, I'm thinking of John chapter 10, verse 10, that we could have a life in you and experience it 
in this place in abundance. Jesus, you promised that you'd give us life and give it to us in abundance in this life. And you've promised us eternity with you in the life afterwards. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to orientate our lives with eternity in view. Amen.